0: All right, we are in Romans chapter 8, which we will be for this entire season, Uh, and I started last week on verses 5 to 8. We didn't complete that, and so I'd like to continue uh, focusing in on Romans 8, 5 to 8. You know, this, effectively, this chapter really is the cornerstone of our Christian faith. Paul is speaking to us about what it means to be a Christian. And as I said to one of the brothers beforehand, uh, Paul outlines that in the mind of God, there's only two classes of people, the saved and the unsaved. Uh, and and so he's made that very clear in his writings. And so many of us uh, put a third class, the carnal Christian we call it. Well, according to Paul, there is no such thing as a carnal Christian. You're either all in or you're all out. And we're going to focus on that today. So... If you turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 5 to 8, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God, It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Uh, And so here he is, he's defining what it means to be a Christian, what the mindset of the Christian is, and what the mindset of God is as he regards us. Uh, And so effectively he speaks here about what characterizes an unsaved person. This is important. Well, they're defined in four ways as you read his writing. First of all, his thinking, the way an unsaved person thinks. They don't think like a, a, a saved person. They're focusing on materialism and things of this world, carnal issues. They're not thinking about God uh, in every way. Then his state, meaning what's his condition? How does he walk? Uh, and if you're an unsaved person, effectively, and this is important, you are hostile to God. Now, this sounds a little rough, but it's pretty clear from, from reading the passage that God only looks at the world as saved and unsaved. So if you're unsaved, effectively, you are hostile to God. Then, then it says it looks as his religion. Now, God does not de- care what denomination you belong to. Let me make that clear. And let me give you a tip that you should remember. When you get to heaven... And I'm confident you all will. When you get up there, uh, do yourself a favor and don't say, where are the Baptists? Where are the Catholics? Okay? Because a trap door could open up. Uh, that's a bad thing to ask. All right? Because God does not recognize denominations. You understand? Uh, when I read the Bible, I don't see the first church in Jerusalem. All right? I don't see it. I, I see a, a Bible that's written without denominations. And so God looks really at your mindset with him. That's your religion. And you know, the religion, there is a religion of the unsaved. Meaning what? It is personal human philosophy. You understand that? It's humanism. It's what feels good to me. That's that's the, the, the religion of the unsaved. Uh, and what you find in that is, as part of that, that humanistic uh, procedures, that they believe that there are many ways to God. That's a classic, uh, many ways to God. Uh, and so God looks at that, and that's one of the things that he judges. And then he looks at your present condition. Where are you? Are you walking with him? You may call yourself a Christian. You may say all the right words, but does your life speak to that? Does it speak to that? Uh, and so all these issues uh, are critical. Now, Paul details those who live according to the sinful nature uh, set their minds on what that nature desires. And what does the human nature desire? Well, it's pretty clear. Uh, it, these fleshly things that we are attracted to include typically sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, a preoccupation with money, and materialism. There it is. With that, those four things, you pretty much cover the gamut. I would add also narcissism. Narcissism. Me. Me. I. I. What do I want? What do I need? What? What? What affects me? I'm interested in me and promoting me uh, instead of what does God want? What does God want from me? Uh, but here's something that you may not think about. Uh, this danger includes even someone who could be considered a moral person, all right? Because morality, as evidenced by Paul himself, does not evidence a heart for God. Uh, Even a moral person, really, uh, who would not be engaged in debauchery might not have his heart and mind set on God. Uh, And I told you uh, in a previous session that I was president of of an elite private school that specialized in ethics uh, and and had an ethics curriculum from kindergarten to 12. How about that? You've got a Blue Ribbon Award from the White House uh, where I, got, I had the pleasure to go and accept the an award. But I said to the headmaster, I said, you know, it's great for us to study ethics, uh, Aristotelian ethics, but the one thing that ethics misses is grace. There's no grace, you see, in human ethics. In Christianity, there's grace. Meaning what? As you have the role that you strive to achieve, God gives you grace, unmerited favor to walk there. Uh, Ethics is no different than the Jewish law that they had. It's the same thing. We understand what it was. It was doomed to fail. And so here you see Paul himself uh, really... Uh, by any, any stretch of any imagination, a moral man, a leader in Jerusalem, you know, uh, in the Sanhedrin, a Pharisee. Look at how he describes himself in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5. He says there about himself that, that he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. A Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless, faultless. You know, you gotta love Paul. Uh, even when he, he writes about himself, he says things that none of us would ever say about ourselves. Right? I mean, who would, who would ever call yourself faultless? Well, he would. All right? because he was using the the measuring stick of the law as he knew it, and he was so enamored with the law that he went after, with zeal, the Christian community. And so here a guy is, completely moral by human standards, and yet so far out of God's will. You understand? The point of this is, morality does not bring you to salvation. Morality does not bring you under the will of God. This is an important thing for us to understand. And so, when you come across people that say, "Well, I'm a good husband, I'm a good father, I'm a good man," uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a leader in the community. You have to understand and, and immediately say to them, "Yes, but but, do you ever sin? Do you ever fall? Do you ever fail? Because if you fall once, you're outside of God's will, uh, and that's why you need a Savior. And so, you see this here." As Paul writes this, and it's critical for us to do. And Paul describes, uh, in in very profound ways, uh, the state of the unbeliever. Now, this is, this is something that we need to focus on. Because, you know, so many of us know people that are good people. They're good people. They're not saved, but they're friends of ours, right? They're, they're family members in many ways. Uh, and we care about them. But here's what he says he describes their state as, quote, death. Death. How about that? Death. This is serious stuff. Uh, he's not speaking of physical death, obviously. He's speaking of spiritual death. Uh, and so he's he's maintains that the unsaved person, the unsaved person, is as unresponsive to the things of God as a corpse, as a corpse. They cannot even respond to the things of God in the state that they are in unless the Holy Spirit uh, touches them uh, and, and allows them to respond. Uh, and, and so this becomes important for us, it's important for you, as you reach out to people you care about and you want to give the gospel to, how, how important it is that they understand uh, what, what it is that God is doing. Now the Bible tells us, and Paul writes about this, that the power and wisdom and the glory of God are clearly revealed in nature. And so when you really begin to speak to people about who God is, one of the things that they have to recognize is that God has revealed himself uh, in nature. Psalm 19, verse 1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the works of His hands. Now I spoke about this yesterday, uh, but really, you know, we always hear somebody say, "Well, you Christians, what about those those natives out in the middle of the Amazonian jungle?" They always bring them up. They all they all have a heart for the natives in the Amazonian jungle, don't they? Uh, the thing is, is that they want to use that because they're trying to indict you. For what you're saying, meaning that they, that they need to come to Christ. And how are they going to come to Christ out in the middle of the jungle? Well, this is how Psalm 19 tells you God is preaching to them, preaching to them through the heavens. They look up, they see the sun, they see the moon, they see the stars. And there is an internal radar that speaks to them because the Bible also tells us that Jesus in John chapter one, Jesus is the light that lighteth the heart of every man that cometh into the world. He is the light that lighteth the heart of every man that cometh into the world. What does it mean? It means that he's there, that God has put that receptor there, that as soon as somebody looks up and sees and begins to understand that immediately that light goes off uh, and God touches them. Uh, And so the unsaved person, however, doesn't see it, you see, They don't see the handiwork of God. They're not interested in it. Uh, It's only when their heart is touched that they begin to understand that. They would far rather believe, far rather believe, that the creation came about by somebody lighting a match, an explosion, and here you go. Right? Of course, the question becomes, well, who lit the match? Right? They don't like to talk about that. Uh, uh, And so, yes, who lit the match? And my favorite explanation of that condition is this, their position that everything came about because of an explosion is akin to you having an explosion in your garden, going out and finding a Rolex watch. That's the analog to that. That's how ridiculous it is to maintain that. Clearly there is a creator's hand involved in the universe. Uh, And I also spoke about this yesterday as well. Uh, and that's the issue of it's clear that Jesus holds everything together. The scriptures tell us that He is responsible not only for the creation itself, but holding everything together. Uh, and science now tells us that as you drill down on the atoms and the neutrons and the very aspects uh, of of nature that that we're all composed, that there's some inherent interstitial force that keeps it all together. Why does it all stay together in its proper place? It's because of Jesus. That's why Jesus is holding it together. And I'm going to tell you that someday God is going to say to the Lord, let go. Let go. That day will happen. Uh, And so uh, this becomes important for us to understand that. And it's key that it's the Holy Spirit that gives us this understanding. Look, we didn't come to this understanding that I'm speaking to you about or that you know. We didn't come to this uh, by accident or, accident or by our own human studying. It's through the Holy Spirit. It's when we've given our hearts to God, we bow to God, God gives you the Holy Spirit. He implants it in your heart. And it is that internal power and authority that gives you the understanding that when I say what I'm saying, here's what you should be saying in your heart. Amen. Amen, He's right. He's right. it speaks to me in every possible way. Uh, look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 2, uh, which speaks about this very issue. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 14. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. There it is. You can only discern these things through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit. And so even as we want to advance people and bring them to Christ, that unless they open themselves up and allow themselves to be touched by, this, by the Holy Spirit, uh, it'll be for naught. It'll be for naught. And so Paul speaks then, about, as I said before, the religion of the unsaved. Uh, And you may say, well, well, what does the unsaved have as a religion? Oh, they have a religion. It's narcissism. It's self. uh, It's an a la carte religion. It's a religion in which it's something from column A, something from column B, but it winds up being a thousand ways to God. Okay? A thousand ways to God. Why? Because I don't want to be told. I don't want you to tell me what I have to do to get to God. I'm a smart guy. I'm a smart person. I don't need you to tell me that. I can figure that out myself, yourself. Well, yeah, go ahead. You figure it out yourself. And if you continue down that path, I hope you like heat. Uh, because it's not going to end in a good way. It's not going to end in a good way. Uh, these are mutually inconsistent ideas that the unsafe cobble together uh, and they're typically a collection of human thoughts. That's what they write—human philosophy. They always love to get some uh, new Eastern book, new, new, new book on meditation, and all this stuff is garbage. Uh, I remember some years ago when uh, what's her name on, on uh, television? I've had—I'm blanking out now—the uh, uh, black woman that had a big program. Oprah. Thank you, senior moment, Oprah. Uh, was, was, was saying that she attached herself to some of this new Eastern thinking. Uh, and, and she, she was endorsing this book and one of these guys was on her show on a regular basis. Uh, and she was uh, angry about Christianity because she said, she, she saw that verse that said, I am a jealous God. I am a jealous God. And she repudiated that. I can't be part of a jealous God. Well, you don't even understand who God is. You understand? I'm doing a seven-part series in church on Sundays now about understanding who God is. And so much of the Christian world has no idea who God is. The holiness of God. How He demands your total worship. He is your creator. He has created everything. And for you to not really understand what it means by, I am a jealous God, just shows the, the uh, ignorance that you're walking around with. And so you then, when you're ignorant, you adapt and you reach out to books that are out, out of uh, character with the Bible. This This author's position that she loved was that God is within you. I love that. God is within you. You need to go deeper inside, you see? And when you go deeper inside, you will find God. Well, let me tell you, ladies and gentlemen, that I have made that trip. And what I have found is a deep, dark hole, deep inside of me. And I would concede that that same trip would be relevant for you. There is no God in you until you get saved, and then the Holy Spirit is implanted within you. You understand? But that's an operation performed only by God. And if God doesn't perform that operation, well, that's to no avail. Understand that. And so Paul makes it very clear, and this is for you uh, to to give to an unsaved world, that an unsaved person cannot please God. Effectively, he is walking as an enemy of God. I said that this morning to, to one of the brothers. You are walking as an enemy of God if you are unsaved. It's pretty hard words. Uh, but you have to understand that you have rejected the greatest lifesaver given in the history of the world, you have rejected God himself and his son when he bankrupted heaven. Is there any doubt about that? He bankrupted heaven to send Jesus to this world, and you, with your puny, finite, human mind, said, not for me. Not for me. I don't need that. I have a better way. Well, how do you think God would act? You think he'd be hostile to you? you think he would be an enemy to you? And well, let me ask you something. Is there anything worse than having God as your enemy? Is there anything worse? Think about it. Uh, and so God is displeased constantly with unbelievers. And if you want to understand the kindly, generous, loving nature of God, think of yourself yourself as difficult as it could be, as if one in some way you stood in the shoes of God and you looked at your creation and you saw that a majority of the creation was going like this to you. You understand? I don't need you. I don't want you. I'm going to do your own thing. What would you do? Well, I could tell you what I would do. My size 13 would be squashing down uh, on these human ants. You understand? And then think about God allowing this to go on for centuries after centuries with patience, loving, kindness, giving everybody a chance to come to faith. What a great God we have. How great He is. And so we need to understand this. And so all of this thinking of the unsaved needs to be juxtaposed with the characteristics of the Christian. And they're very different. Uh, and so here he he juxtaposes this in verse five. He describes the Christians' thinking, saying that the Christian has his mindset uh, on the things of the spirit. The things of the spirit. Uh, now this eliminates the idea of the someone being religious. And let me clarify this. God is not interested in your religiosity, all right? And by that, I mean uh, your devotion to a particular denomination, all right? Or your, your devotion to a particular set of rules. God looks at your heart. This whole thing we're involved in, what this is involved in, and we study this, is heart issues. Where is your heart? I'm not interested in your head because religiosity often relates to your head, where you can spout off a group, a group of laws, uh, as they relate or even understand theology. God doesn't care, you see. If you're in graduate school in theology, look at Paul. He was in postgraduate school, and yet he was far outside of the will of God. God is interested in your heart. That is why that salvation. And Christianity can come to people who are the most uneducated. Amen. You understand that? God does not need an educated person in order to be saved. And the classic example of that is at the manger. When the mice, wise men come in from the Far East, uh, and now lose the star and they go into Jerusalem to find out where, where is the, where is the, the Christ child being? Where is the king of Israel going to be born? And her turns his religious leaders. Well, where is it? Well, they immediately open the Bible, turn to Michael, and they go, "Yeah, here it is. Oh, uh, it's Bethlehem, six miles down the road. Turn right." But they don't go. They don't go, even though they had the head knowledge to know exactly where Christ would be born. They didn't go. Why? Because their heart didn't want it. They didn't want to have. A Messiah a leader they wanted to do their own things and this is typical of what religious people do they're interested in their own things I'm always stunned by people that will stay in a specific church for decades even though admittedly they're not being fed have you seen that they'll go to a church why well my grandfather my father uh, my uncles, there's these familial relationships and yet they're not getting fed. They're doing this out of habit. That's religiosity, you see. That's religiosity. Instead, your heart should be piqued and you should be saying, God, where do I go to be fed? What do you want me to hear? Lord, how can my life be changed? Uh, and so a Christian is not someone who is merely religious, uh, because Really, to be merely religious is not necessarily to be uh, constrained by the Spirit. The Pharisees were religious in every way, yet they killed Jesus. How about that? You want somebody more religious than the Pharisees? There was nobody in Israel more religious than the Pharisees, yet they killed Jesus. Uh, and just like Paul's thinking was the same way, before he was saved, And on the road to Damascus, it all became clear. Uh, And so, uh, here's the other thing. That in order to be a Christian, you need to hold to correct theological beliefs. I've come to the conclusion that you don't need to be an expert in theology to be a Christian. You need to be an expert in Jesus Christ. You understand? Meaning this. You may be off in some of your theology. You may be. But if you are an adherent to Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit will eventually straighten you out. I believe that. I believe that clearly. I think that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is where much of Christianity gets it wrong. Uh, you know, we we drill people down about doctrines, about theology, and yet we let them go with a heart that's not committed to Christ. This is all about heart. Everything we do is heart. God doesn't care about where your head is. He cares about where your heart is. And so being a Christian is much more than giving assent to certain theological doctrines. Uh, Much more. Uh, We have to insist on the right to be born again. Look, when Jesus met with Nicodemus, here he was, the number one religious leader in Israel. The leader of the Sanhedrin. Nobody knew more About religious doctrine than Nicodemus. And yet, what did Jesus say to him? The temerity to say this. You need to be born again. And I, you know, we would say, as we say in New Jersey, are you talking to me? You talking to me, Jesus? You know who I am? You know who I am? I'm Nicodemus. I'm the greatest of the great. I'm the most religious of the religious. Yeah. I knew how, you know who you are and you need to be born again. Uh, what a powerful, powerful presentation, but our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ about what it means for you. And, and it also eliminates the thought that a Christian is someone who has attained a certain standard of approved conduct. Don't judge someone's religious standing by what you see as approved conduct. Because I can tell you that the world is full of people that are far outside of the will of God, yet they lead seemingly moral lives. A seemingly moral lives is not being born again. Because if it were, Paul never had to meet Jesus on the road to Damascus. There's something greater than a seemingly correct Code, code of moral life. Uh, a, a Christian, you see, a Christian is someone who has been born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. You did nothing to deserve it. It's not your, your personality, your winsome personality, or the things that you've done, or your generosity, or your loving attitude. It is because somehow you have come to an understanding that you are desperate outside of the will of God. You reach up to God and say, Father, I need a Savior. And God instantaneously reaches across eternity and saves you and puts the Holy Spirit in your heart. Can I get an amen to that? Let's understand that. And so here as we see this, as we drill down on these verses, uh, in verse 6 there, Paul describes the Christian state as life and peace. That's how we live. When we're Christians, we live in a state of life and peace, meaning what? Our spirit is alive. When we die, we will go to heaven. Listen, here's the thing. If somebody asks you, uh, are you going to heaven? Don't go, well, I I, I hope so. I think so. Uh I I I hope. No, you don't hope. You know. You understand? You know you're going to heaven. Why? Because God promised you that. Because you've given him your life. That means the moment you die, the next step is across the curtain into eternity. That's the thing. All right? And so that's what we need to understand uh, why, uh, how important that is. That puts us at peace with God. And when we are at peace with God, when we live that kind of life, here's what comes about. You have peace in this world. Right? I mean, when the angels promised that, right? Uh, Peace and goodwill to all mankind, those who have committed themselves to God. When the angel said it, it didn't mean that the world would be, would have peace. The world will never have peace. It's Satan's world. He's in charge. And so what it means instead that you who have committed yourself to worshiping him, following him, you will go to heaven with him. And while you're here in this world, you will have peace. You are alive with Jesus Christ. You are alive with Jesus Christ. And those who are not saved are dead men and women walking. That should break our hearts. That should break our hearts. That's why I emphasize every moment that I that I speak about our obligation to reach out, to speak about Jesus Christ, wherever you are, uh, wherever you are. And I, and I hope that you'll do that. I did a five-part series last month on evangelism. That's our responsibility. God told us, go out and make disciples of the lost. You don't just sit here and come to Bible study. When you go out this door and go into the parking lot, you have a responsibility to spread the word. You need to speak about Jesus Christ. Uh, And so this becomes important. And so the question for all of us uh, is this, has the Holy Spirit of God, has the Holy Spirit of God made you alive in Jesus Christ, so that your thinking, your very thinking, uh, the state of your life uh in every way and your present condition has been changed radically as to what you were before. And you know, there's a couple of litmus tests that I can give you. One of them is: are you now in a position where you can't wait to go to church? Do you find that you can't wait to go to church. Because I would say this, that if you're born again, you can't wait to go to church. And I'd say this, if you find that you, that you going to church is not that kind of experience, well, maybe you need to find another church. But I would say this to you, that when you are truly born again, you can't wait to go to church. I can't wait to hear the Word of God. Now, I know what you're saying. Well, you're the preacher. You're the preacher. Yeah, I'm the preacher, but I want you to understand something. Who do you think I'm preaching to first? Me. Me. Every sermon that I write, every time I get up, whatever I say here, I'm speaking to me first. My dad used to say, when I point out like this, I have one finger pointing out, but i got three pointing back at me. You understand? That's the essence of what it is. I'm responsible to God. God is indicting me. I can't wait to hear what God has on a Sunday morning. And you might say, "Well, you wrote it. You wrote it. You knew what you wrote." But here's the thing: the Holy Spirit changes it. I, I can't. I mean, it may be hard for you to understand. But even as I as I deliver these sermons, it's coming across in a new way. I often listen to the radio programs. Because I will hear things I never heard before. And my wife will say to me, well, you, you, you spoke. It's you. I know, but the Holy Spirit is revealing something to me now that I didn't consider. I didn't think about. That's what it's about. That's why you can't wait to get to church. All right. You can't wait to hear the word of God that's going to speak to your spirit and enliven you and give you life and fill you out. And then there's another reason because you're going to be surrounded by the people of God. One of the reasons we have a successful Bible study here is that we have men committed to the worship of God. You come out here and you are with guys who walk with God. Who know that that they're not perfect, but they love God. You have a chance to be with them. That's important. That's what God wants you to do. We pray for each other. We lift each other up. Uh, and, and as we do that, we recognize that we have all passed from death into life, every single one of you, from death into life. And so the question I have for you is this, that is, has God done this to you? Has God so changed you like this? Because if he hasn't, then you need to get back on your knees and ask him to touch your heart, uh, to effect the change. But I would say this, that if you're here, this is a great sign, that you know where you're going to get fed, and that God responds to that. Now, I want to look at the next two verses in uh, chapter 8, verses 9 to 11, as we start that part of the study. It says there, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death, because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. You see, everything is derived from Jesus. Everything that you have is because of Christ dying on the cross. The very life that's in you The spirit that's in you is because of what he did on the cross and you adopting him and taking him because that's why God sees you as righteous. All right. Let's understand something. God sees every one of you who is born again as righteous. You're not righteous. Okay. But he sees you as righteous because he has the filtering lens of Christ in front of him who makes you Christ, uh, uh, righteous. Uh, and so Jesus made it abundantly clear Uh, that not all people who considered themselves disciples of Christ were, in fact, considered such by him. This is important, uh, because I would say much of the world that calls themselves Christian considers themselves disciples of Christ. Well, what's the litmus test on that? Look at Matthew 25, verse 11. Look there. And you know, uh, this is the passage where the the ten virgins are preparing for the bridegroom to come. Uh, Five had oil, five didn't have oil, and they go out and they wait for the bridegroom to come. Uh, And then when he comes, uh, he only lets five in that had the oil. And look what he says here. Later the others also came, those who didn't have the oil, who weren't prepared. Lord, Lord! They said, open the door for us. Open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Now this should be a very sobering uh, statement for you to hear. Meaning that much of Christianity who believes they know Jesus has not walking with him. Their heart is not consistent with them. And what I would say is, is that you see how God rejects that. God is very simple. He looks at your heart. Uh, This passage applied to both the five wise and the five foolish waiting for the bridegroom. They all were invited to the wedding. All ten of them were invited to the wedding. In other words, to be a part of the kingdom of God. Uh, All had been invited to the visible church. All professed to call the Lord the bridegroom. Call him Lord. All believed in the Lord's second coming, and all were waiting for Jesus. In other words, they had the head knowledge. They read the Bible, their head told them who Jesus was, they knew mentally who Jesus was, Uh, and even as they fell asleep, all fell asleep, uh, but nonetheless, five were not accepted. The point of this is very simple, and that is that professing Christians should examine themselves to see if they are really Christian. Are you really a Christian? Are you really walking with God? That's why Romans 8 is such a great chapter. You see, it doesn't just put a coat of paint on where we are. It drills down, drills down deeply into what God expects from you. Are you walking with Christ? Uh, Are you really a Christian? Clearly, a mere profession of faith is not enough. How about that? Oh, yeah, you know. Are you a Christian? Yes, I'm a Christian. Yes, I, I, I know who Jesus is. Yes, I know who Jesus is. I believe Jesus walked in the world. He was a great man. I believe Jesus. Some will say, I even believe Jesus is God. And then I would say, well, are you walking with him? Have you taken up the cross and walking with him? Are you a disciple of him? Well, you know, I can't go crazy i got to live in this world. i got to go to work. I don't want my family to think I'm some religious nut. You've heard it, right? Well, here's the thing, folks. God wants you to be a religious nut. God wants you to devote yourself completely to him. You have to completely give your heart uh, to Christ in every possible way. Now, we've already discussed that Paul sees uh, the world in only two stages christians and non-christians there is no category called carnal christian how about that no category called carnal christian and what i would say to you is this as i've tried to to really refine my thinking on this and explain it what i have concluded is that there's a two-day experience in salvation day one is effectively coming to faith accepting jesus as your lord and savior but what much of the world does is they know who Jesus is. They say they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And then they put a chair down and camp out. And this is where I'll be the rest of my life, right here in this positional thinking. When in fact, there's a day two experience that is just as important, which is take up my cross and follow me. You understand? Taking up the cross, meaning the cross of Christ, walking with him, being his disciple in every way, in a million ways, that is the evidence of who we are. And that is why much of the Christian world it really is not walking with Christ. And frankly, I think we've failed in teaching people about this. I think we've failed that way. And so the Bible tells us very clearly that we are to examine ourselves as to our standing with the Lord. Uh, and I, obviously this is much of what Romans 8 is about self-examination. Look at 2 Peter verse 1. 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 verse 10. Excuse me. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, I want to make sure I've explained this verse properly. This verse does not mean you will lose your salvation. There is a multitude of verses that I could give you. I don't have time now. That would be a separate study on eternal security. I will do that someday. I've already done that. Which means that when you are saved, when God reaches out and holds you in his hand, nothing can take you out of the hand of God once you are saved. No power. No principality. Nothing can take you out of God's hand. Look. You didn't walk into the hand. You didn't deserve to get into the hand. It was a free gift that he reached out and grabbed you and held you. So what makes you think that you who did nothing to get into his hand can get yourself walking out of the hand? It's so far from, from truth. And so what this verse really means is that God expects us daily to examine ourselves. How's my walk? How's my life? Uh, am I walking with you, Lord? Am I confirming my calling and election? Am I standing tall for you, Jesus? Am I a good example of what you want me to be? Am I bringing other people to Christ? Or when they look at me, do they go, Phew, I had no idea you were a Christian. You know that that old story. Two guys gathered at a water cooler and work. Uh, and one guy says to the other, yeah, I went to church yesterday. And the other guy says, wow, I'm amazed. I've worked with you for 20 years. I had no idea you were a Christian. What a sad commentary that is, isn't it? What a sad, I have no idea you were a Christian. I've worked with you for 20 years. And so we have a responsibility here uh, to, to confirm our calling and election. Uh, yes, we will fall from time to time. Yes, we will stumble. But within the will of God, the grace that God gives us, we'll get up and walk again. That's what God's grace is about. Look, we don't dwell in sin. We may periodically stumble in sin, but as a Christian men, we will get up. We will be convicted and we will walk in a greater way with the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop here uh, as we continue our study for next week and just uh, pray as God closes this. Lord, I thank you so much for the lessons that you've given us, for this deep knowledge of what salvation is about, how you are affecting our hearts and we're walking with you, Jesus. I pray that this may resonate with each man this week, that you protect him and give him opportunities to present this gospel to somebody who desperately needs it. Lord, be with our men, protect them, affirm them in every way, and bring them back next week to continue the study of your world as we put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you.